Again, thank you for uh, getting those times reset, those clocks reset, and all that good stuff this morning. Uh, lots of, I mean, any baseball fans in the room? Baseball's back on for the season. Yeah. Hey, I just, uh, the good news for me, um, I know that the, the Reds will not be in last place in their division this year. Twofold. One, because the Pirates will always be in last place. And two, um, because the Cubs fans have already thrown in the towel for the season. And that's awesome. It hasn't even started. Um, oh. Then you're not, even my brother-in-law, he's like the biggest Cubs fan in the world. He's already done with the season. He, he knows there's no hope this year. So I was like, all right, so, so not last. We're like, we're it's still not going to win, but that's okay, you know? It's, it's good. It's, it's all good. Uh, it's, it's fun. I did, I told some people this morning it means nothing, but I, I've looked at last week. I knew this weather was coming this weekend, this cold, cold spell, and I looked it up, and I, I looked at, they have those long-range forecasts for temperatures, and you can look like months in advance if you didn't know that. Um, there's no more dates below freezing, none, until like next fall. So we'll see if it holds up, but I'm excited about that. Yes, I hope you are as well. I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I don't often uh, put a lot of energy into creating a title um, for the messages because we're, we're speaking from God's Word. Every once in a while, they're really important. Uh, we think a lot about the series and, and what those titles should be and things, but the individual messages, I, I don't even often reference them in here, and there's lots of reasons for that, but this week, this week is, is an essential title because if you read it at first, you might just kind of blow right past it and not even really fully comprehend what it says, uh, but the title for today is how can they tell that you're sure? How can they tell that you're sure? The whole purpose of Luke writing this gospel, and it'll be the theme of our Easter series, the whole purpose of Luke writing this is to put all of these details in order so that we can be certain, you as a believer, if you're a believer, you can be certain of the things that you've been taught. Well, that's all well and good if you're certain, but if nobody on planet earth can tell that you're certain, then there's no point in you being certain. Because it's your life, your example, the way you treat others that will ultimately lead them in Christ's direction. And so if no one can tell a difference between you and everyone else, then there's no point in you being certain at all because we're not living it out. And so that's why this title is, is so important because this is the end of the Sermon on the Plain. This is the final part of this message. Um, I'm glad we made it to this part because the last about three weeks have been really heavy, really hard teachings to digest. Now, it's possible, it's very possible that you could listen, that you could read about these blessings for the poor, these woes for the rich. You could read about how Jesus reminding us to, to love our enemies. For the first time ever in history, he said, hey, I need you to love your enemies. That had never been said before ever. You could possibly have remembered the fact that it, we're supposed to, to do good to those that want that hate us, to love our enemies, and then, of course, to pray for those that mistreat us. You might have even thought last week, you know, Jesus is probably right. It's probably not good to, to judge others a whole lot. I, I think, you know, Jesus, your teachings, those are pretty good, man. You, you got it. Like, well done, Jesus. Like, those are, those are some great, great teachings. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what they look like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. 
Those are the words of James. James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the son of Mary and Joseph. James states at the opening of his letter that he is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered across the world. And James, unlike anyone else really in the New Testament, is coming at this from a very unique perspective. You see, because James spent all of his early life and well into his young adulthood listening to the words of Jesus. He listened, but he didn't believe. Now, we don't know how these words made him feel. We don't know what he sat there and thought as he heard his older brother teaching these things. Was he angry? Maybe. Was he just a little put off? Maybe. Did he just ignore his brother completely? Possibly. But regardless of how he felt, we know that he didn't believe. It wasn't, he was not a follower yet. He did not apply the teachings of Jesus to his life. Not until after the resurrection. Now, we don't know exactly how or when this transformation took place, but we're certain that it did. I like to envision in my mind's eye, because God gives us the freedom to do that. I like to envision, you know, we know what Jesus did after his resurrection in regards to the disciples. We know how he appeared in the room with them. We know how he appeared on that road to Emmaus. We know how he, you know, just made these individual appearances. Do you think there's a chance he might have appeared to his very own family? Because I sure do. I sure do. Because he knew their thoughts about him throughout his existence. And now here he was, and they were teetering on the fence, and now he could go to them and say, okay, I've been telling you, I know you didn't believe, here's the truth. That's the way I like to think of it. We don't know if that's how it went down or not. But James did a complete about face. He completely transformed his life. He fully accepted Jesus from that moment on, and he went on to become one of the most important leaders in all of the church, for sure in Jerusalem. But even when Paul and Barnabas and those guys were having problems, they would come back and they would talk to the disciples, Peter and James, one of those guys right there, to get information. And it's James that made some really important decisions along the way in regards to us Gentiles. Huge, huge impact. So James wrote these words knowing what it meant to live that life because he did it. He knows what is happening in the heart and in the mind of someone who can just walk away from the teachings of Jesus and not be changed. He knows what it's like not to have a desire to see those teachings lived out in his own life. He knew what that was like. And if we were honest with ourselves, many of us do as well. We gather, we study the word of God together. Each of us have to individually, as we do that, prepare our hearts and our minds to come in and to worship, to lay it all before the throne of God, and to come in and learn and grow and allow the word of God to penetrate into our very souls and transform us. Because it seems as humans that our instinct has become to resist it, to be distracted so we can't apply it, to dismiss the teachings that we're receiving as irrelevant or unapplicable to our lives. Church, the reality is we're not blessed by hearing the Word of God. As a matter of fact, we're not blessed by listening to the Word of God. And yes, those are two different things. James reminds us that we are blessed only when we do it, when we put it into action. Not only are you blessed when you put it into action, but when you start to apply those teachings, the bride of Christ is blessed as well. When we prove ourselves faithful to his word, then he will now entrust us with even more opportunities to share with others. 
when we're faithful to his words, his blessings will flow to us, through us, and out of us into those all around us as well. It's a phenomenal transformation that takes place. When we live out these teachings, then those around us, they experience his grace, and they experience his mercy and his love and his forgiveness through each and every one of us. As we do that, it will draw more and more hurting people to him, more and more lost people to him. The teachings today, all they really do is they continue to cause us to take a deep look inside of ourselves, to evaluate our lives, our behaviors, our attitudes, our actions with other people. So as a church, if you're a believer, then this is a challenge to fundamentally change who we are. We have to be. We, we will be changed, absolutely, by the forgiveness, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus. But the reality is, when we receive that, will we be changed in a way that shares it with others, or will we continue to just receive that grace and mercy of Jesus and claim it for ourselves? Not sharing it, any of those gifts, with the people around us, because that would be a complete tragedy. Now, the, the stories for today, there's two teachings that we're going to start with, and they seem so very obvious, and I would contend that they probably are. But how often do we completely ignore or just disregard these simple, simple teachings Again, they come at the very end of the Sermon on the Plain, these revolutionary teachings that Jesus has brought in about loving our enemies and judging others. These two might seem like they're a little bit easier to digest because they're so simple to understand, but the reality is all they actually do is compound the challenge that Jesus has already thrown down to us. So we're in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 40. I meant to say it a long time ago, so you can go ahead and flip to that. If you need a Bible, there's some under the seats. Open your phone, your tablet, whatever it is that you use to read such things. It's a famous story. Both of these teachings are pretty famous. Many of you might know them. In verse 43, Jesus starts, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now, again, on the surface, seems super duper obvious. It is. Yes, Jesus, a good tree makes good fruit. Yes, Jesus, an apple tree makes apples. That's why we call it an apple tree. So, what are you trying to tell us? Like, it seems so very obvious. If we're in Christ then we are to love our enemies. If we are in Christ, then we are to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. We are to exhibit the traits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. See, those are the fruits of Christ within us. In other words, no Christian can truly harbor hatred and judgmentalism or censoriousness, the word from last week. In Christ, we are unable to produce such fruit. If we're a good tree, we don't produce bad fruit, is what Jesus is telling us. So if these things are prevalent in our lives, then Christ is not. We're not allowing him to be what is seen. If your heart is full of the goodness of Jesus, then goodness will be what flows out of us. So then Jesus, okay, if that's the case, how do I evaluate my life? How do I figure out if this is happening or not? Well, he tells us. And again, it seems so very simple. He tells us, just listen to what you say. Just, just look at what you put out there, and, and, and you can figure it out. 
Your mouth will pour out what your heart is full of. Now, I might insert something else here. Your social media feed will pour out what your heart is full of. If your, fart, if your heart is full of hatred and judgmentalism, then your words are going to be cunning and cruel and obviously judgmental. What does that look like? Well, if you're uncertain as to how language really impacts people, think of a conversation that you've had with someone who was struggling. Maybe they were just completely heartbroken inside. You, you can sense their hopelessness in their life. The longer that you talked with them, you might have even felt yourself being weighed down by the burdens of the things that they are going through. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, be merciful as your heavenly father. You can tie that one with another passage from Romans 12, verse, verse, verse 15. Mourn with those who mourn. You see, those individuals, when you're talking with them, what is their mouth speaking what their heart is full of? Pain, grief, guilt, shame, regret, whatever that is, and you have been impacted by that. It's no different as a believer. What do our mouths, what flows from our mouths? Do people see a good tree within us? There's no command for other people not to judge us as a believer. As a matter of fact, if they think we're a believer, it might be do us well if they held us accountable a little bit. They are judging us. They will. So are the mercy and the grace of God, which, they have, which we've received, are those represented in the words that we use? In Christ, we have more goodness stored up inside of us than we could ever imagine. Our job is just to let it out, to let it spew out into everyone's lives. Our lives are the trees that Jesus is referring to, and that fruit should be growing on us from God. Metaphorically speaking, the people around us are tasting the fruit through every single interaction they have with us. What are they tasting? Everything they hear say, everything they see us do, it gives a whole new meaning to Psalm 34, 8, a whole new way to taste and see that the Lord is good. Did you realize that people can do that through your life? I've talked to believers, and some of you have as well, both young and old, who have this joy inside of them. It is incredible. They are truly at peace, even when they are going through hardships, even when they are going through grief, their tone, their demeanor. It tells you that there's something different about those people. They're still sad, absolutely. They're still grieving, absolutely. But the grace and the mercy of God are what are on display throughout that grief or the pain that they're struggling with. You see, Jesus' teachings are so good that it doesn't matter if you lived in A.D. 30 when he was originally speaking them or 1200 AD or 2022 today, they're so easy to understand. We all still know, believe it or not, what a fruit tree is. And we can still tell good fruit from bad fruit. But just because we know and just because we can understand them doesn't mean that we will take this teaching to heart. Remember, this is all back to back to back. This is one sitting for all of these people. He's giving them all of these teachings that we've divided up into four weeks. He gives them all in one quick sitting. Who knows how long it took exactly. He's illustrating the very first point still made on judging others, loving your enemies. It's all tied together. 
So why on earth would Jesus just keep driving home these same exact points? Why would he share the same thing in so many ways and then reinforce it again and again and again? <laughs> Any ideas? Because we're human. Because we're human, and um, let's just say that uh, he could have offered this revolutionary teaching, just the one words, and then walked off the stage, dropped the mic, head on to the next town. He could have done that. But Jesus knows us way better than that. He knows that some of us can be just a bit thick-headed at times. He knows that some of us might be a little stubborn, a little unwilling to change. And believe it or not, some people might be a little unwilling to even listen. So he keeps telling them the same thing over and over to hopefully get it through into their minds to stick so they can apply it to their hearts. So he finishes us this whole sermon on the plane up when he ties a neat little bow around all of it, beginning in verse 46. This crowd has been sitting there for who knows how long, hearing all of these teachings. And he looks at them and he says, hey, um, it's awesome that you're here. It's great that you're listening, but why on earth do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears the words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came and the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. Ah, but the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. So you've all gathered. Well done. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. It's been a great time, everybody. But you're calling me Lord. You're claiming that I'm your leader, that I'm the one in charge. But yet, well, you're not doing anything that I'm telling you. You're not living these things out. He knew then, just like he knows now, that there are many people who claim to be his followers. They claim the name of Christ, but they are not walking the walk that he's laid out for them. So Jesus shares with them another simple, easy-to-understand story. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Song, anyone? Huh? Yeah, a few of you who grew up in Sunday school, you know what I'm talking about firm foundation. The other man on the sand, as the song says, and when the storms came, no shock here, the wise man's house stood firm, and the other person's, you know, you know splat. That's right. Very good. You know the song. That's right. See, there's a few people that remember those wonderful old songs. Every week we gather, we have the opportunity to be digging this foundation. We hear the Word of God. We get to explore the teachings of Jesus together, but when we walk out of these doors, do we put them into practice? Do we continue to reinforce that foundation throughout the week, through our prayer lives, through our study of God's Word on our own? Are these words helping to build the foundation of our lives first and foremost, which then builds our character in this world, build the lives around us of our families, and then ultimately even do our careers? Is this the foundation that all of these things are built on or do we walk away like James, Jesus' brother said earlier, and completely forget whatever it was that was taught from God's Word? You see, the choice is ours. These teachings of Jesus that we're going through together, they're not just good. They're perfect. There's so little in this world, if anything, that's perfect that people can't understand how these, there has to be a flaw. There has to be something wrong, some place this isn't applicable. No, 
No, his teachings are flawless. They're perfect. And, and here's my prayer. Every week, every single week, is that God will somehow get this kid up here out of the way completely so that all you will hear is his word. This is one of the reasons, if some of you ever wonder why I don't tell a ton of stories and, and all of those kinds of things, there's a reason behind that. That's awesome if you walked out of here and think, well, that was a really funny story, or that was really good, but you know what? That means nothing in your life. I want you to walk out of here remembering the Word of God. It's the most important thing that you can remember when we depart, because His Word is for you, and for you, and for you, and you, and it's even, believe it or not, for me. And so I beg you to allow the Word of God to change you, to shape you, to mold you into the man or the woman of God that He desires you to be. It's our goal every week. So we're going to finish today with, with one last indescribable display of affection that then leads to a very, very, very brief teaching of Jesus. So you can probably, if you've got your Bibles open, you'll probably have to turn the page to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 is where we'll begin. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And for those of you that might just be joining us wondering, why are we skipping all those things in the middle? Well, those are the miracles that we've already covered. Uh, we divided this series up in such a way where we talked about the introduction to Jesus and his preparation for ministry and John the Baptist being a part of that. And then we moved to all the miracles that are covered in the book of Luke, and we studied those together. And now we're going through and we're tying in all of those teachings that Jesus filled in throughout the rest of this book of Luke. So before we read Luke 7, 36, I want to bring you up to speed. Everything that happened between the Sermon on the Plain, it's just ended. And Jesus leaves that place and he goes to a town called Capernaum. That is where Jesus heals the centurion's servant. The centurion had ran to go meet Jesus as soon as he got back to town and told him his servant was not doing well and he wanted Jesus to come to his town. And then it got delayed and he wasn't able to come right away and Jesus heals the man just by speaking the words. And he says it's because of the centurion's great faith. And then Jesus leaves that city and he heads to another city called Nain. This was that incredible miracle where as they approach the city, they see this funeral procession leaving the city. And Jesus raises that widow's son back to life. It's immediately after that scene that John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to go check in with Jesus and ask, hey, um... Yeah, I thought, you, are you really the Messiah? Are, are you really through who I thought you were? This is coming from John. And Jesus sends those famous words back to him. Go, go back and report what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So here we are. Could have been that very evening after that encounter with Jesus' disciples, or, or John's disciples, sorry, we don't know. Jesus finds himself at an odd dinner, a very odd dinner, okay? He finds himself at a dinner with a whole bunch of Pharisees. It's an interesting thing. One of those men, one of those Pharisees, was bold enough to ask Jesus to dinner. Regardless of the motivation for doing it, that was still a bold thing to do, to invite him in. Now, my opinion is he probably is just the one that drew the short straw and had to go and do it. But either way, it doesn't matter. Jesus knows the intent of this group of people, all right? How many of you would go to a dinner party where you knew every single one there was trying to get rid of you? Ponder that. For the office party, right? Where everyone in the office hates you, but they invited you to dinner. Why did they 
invite you to dinner? You know what? What is going on with that? Jesus knows these men. They know they have it in for him. He knows what they're trying to do. They want to discredit him. They want to disprove him. And they want to completely dismiss him from society altogether so that way nobody listens to him any longer. So what's Jesus do? <laughs> sure, I'll go to dinner. I like that attitude. Free dinner. Let's go. Let's just, just take them up on their offer. Let's just see what they're going to do. Of course he did. He's Jesus, right? So Jesus is now seated at this dinner, not in a chair. They didn't sit in chairs. Their tables were very low to the ground. So he would have been sitting on the floor around this gathering. This was a public dinner, more than likely, with doors probably open for people on the outside to be able to come in and listen, people to be able to stand on the outside and listen to what was happening. Those that were interested in hearing more of what Jesus might say would have gathered around that building to hear that evening. It's possible that you've heard an account very similar to this, just like the Sermon on the Plain is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. There is a very similar account in John chapter 12. John identifies a woman, a woman named Mary of Bethany, who does a very similar thing for Jesus. But there are some major differences between these two accounts. So what we are to conclude is that this is probably a different event, very similar, but different event, okay? So Luke chapter 7, verse 36, hopefully you've all found it now. It says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with them, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the house of the Pharisees. So she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, and that she is a sinner. Pause there in the middle. The woman speaks no words. She's silent before her Messiah. Her actions, they spark a controversy. First up, well, she happens to be that lady. You know the one. Everybody knows the one. Do you sense some censoriousness in their attitudes? I, I put it up there for you. Uh, my wife afterwards says, hey, that word, you talked about it, but you didn't ever put it up. How do you spell that word? Because um, she was curious to follow up a little more. If you, don't, if you weren't here last week or, or you don't remember that word, that word means it's a spirit of self-righteous, self-promoting, self or sorry, hypercritical, harsh judgmentalism. There's a lot of meaning to that word. We don't know exactly what her sin was. We all instantly have our assumptions, didn't we? Just by the way it was phrased in Scripture. But Jesus lets us know that her sin is real. He comments on it a little later in verse 47. Now, if Jesus was a prophet, <laughs> the, the, the Pharisee threw in there, Jesus is more than a prophet. He knows exactly who this woman is. He knows everything she's ever done. But he also knows the hearts and the minds of the Pharisees who've invited him. He knows every thought they're thinking in the room. This woman has just done something beautiful. We're not going to focus on her act of sacrifice. We're going to take a moment and focus on Jesus' teaching. Because Jesus has to explain to everybody around them who's judging her and judging him because of her beautiful act. 
So he asks Simon, the one who invited him, a question. He says, Simon, I, I have something to tell you. I can just see Simon in his head is thinking, I can't believe he's doing that. Why is he letting her do that? And Jesus is like, hey, Simon, I got something for you. And Simon's like, mm, okay, tell me. Tell me, teacher. Two people, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. 500 denarii was a whole lot of money in Jesus' time, especially for that class of people. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. <laughs> you have judged correctly. Again, don't you love Jesus's teachings? I could go right downstairs right now to a four-year-old and ask them this question. I would have to rephrase it and not use the word denarii. I could use Skittles, but they would understand Okay? They would completely get it. His teachings are for all time. They are eternal. Anyone can understand them. They are so simple. There is no doubt who would love him or appreciate the person that forgave that debt more. Absolutely no doubt in anyone's minds. But did those, understand, those that were listening to Jesus, did they fully understand that? I'm not really sure. So Jesus goes ahead and makes sure that they get it with one last teaching. He then turns away from Simon as he was addressing her, and he looks to the woman that's sitting just behind him off to the side, washing his feet with her tears. And he said, do you see this woman who came to your house? <laughs> you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. You did not greet me with a kiss, <laughs> but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the others began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? So Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now, I want you to look at something that you might not have ever seen in these stories like this before, because I really hadn't, especially being taught it as a child. This was the woman's tribute to Jesus. She came that day to worship Jesus, the one who has already forgiven her. You see, the way this scene plays out, the way the woman comes to Jesus, it should make us believe that Jesus has already had an encounter with this woman somewhere outside of this room. She then went back home, got this jar of perfume, and found out where Jesus was so that she could then go and pay tribute to him, go and worship him for that forgiveness that she has already received. Jesus' wording indicates that that had already taken place, and now this is her response. This was an incredibly humble offer, an incredible tribute, worship worthy of a king. So Jesus takes this woman's example, and he holds it right, right perfect contrast to the actions of the Pharisees, in particular the one who invited him into his home. The self-righteous ones all saw the flaws of this woman as she walked into the home. 
And because of this, they saw her actions with disgust and disdain. I can't believe that he would let that woman do that to him. She's a sinner. (laughs) Censoriousness at its finest. Not that she would perform the actions. There would be nothing wrong with paying tribute to someone. Probably if it was them, they would have fully received it, right? But I can't believe you're letting her do that to you. So Jesus basically says, well, guys, here's the thing. Um, This woman has, has done more for me in the last however long than you even thought about doing when I came to your home. Not a single one of you gave me water to wash my feet. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't do anything at all. Now, Please note, it wasn't a required behavior to do those things when they came to your house. But if you had a guest of honor over, it really should have happened. It was just common courtesy to at least do the bare minimum of foot washing, right? We see that here in a few weeks when we study the Last Supper, don't we? As Jesus humbles himself and washes his disciples' feet. These men saw who this woman had been. Jesus knows who she's been, but he also knows who she is. And most importantly, he knows who she is becoming. And she looks, and he looks at you and I today, and he knows the exact same things. He knows who you've been. He just wants you to come to him in this moment. He's seeking, he's, he's, he literally died so that you could. And he knows who you could become in him, just like this woman. So as the world around us judges us, and it will, and I might contend that it should, how will they see us? Will they see faith in our lives? Will they see the good fruit that we talked of earlier? Or have we given them some reason to question the sincerity of our faith? You see, in these times in which we live, People's opinions and even their lives are literally being blown apart by every storm, every crisis that develops. You know, as a, as a pastor, and in, if you've been in a church a while, you know, people are, are we in the t- end times yet? You know, there's the old adage, of course we are. We're at least 2,000 years closer than we were, so of course we're in the end times. But there's a much more personal response that, that you should think about. You are in the end times, I don't care how old you are in this room, um, you don't have more than 100 years left. You're in the end times. Your end of times is coming soon, all right? And then if you happen to pay attention to things, oh, maybe happening around the world right now, there are potentials for bad things happening, let's just say, right? I think we could agree on that. And there are bad things happening in other parts of the world. Thank God they're not here yet, right? But as we consider these things How is our sense of urgency right now? Has it changed at all? Has COVID just so like desensitized us that we're like, you know what, Uh, life, whatever. We're just going to live and there's really no urgency anymore. It it could stop at a moment. Is that how we're supposed to be as believers? Is that how we're supposed to act? Is that how we're supposed to live? People's opinions are being blown all over the place. Their lives are crumbling at this latest storm, whatever it might be. Do they look at us? Can they look at us and see our lives are somehow firmly on this foundation where no matter what seems to be happening around us, we're still standing strong? Because if we can demonstrate that, if we can survive these storms in this life, and it's only through the power of God, through his spirit within us, if we can survive these things, then people will notice the difference. 
So just to put these last two weeks together, if you're struggling with judgmentalism as you look around this world that has completely abandoned God in so many ways, do you and I need to come before God so we get that huge plank out of our eyes so that we can then be completely able to see and help those around us with the love of Christ? Can we see them as lost and dying souls separated from the love of Jesus? And then can we share with them the love that we found in Christ? I want to end with a final verse. It's one of my favorite verses. It actually became the theme of all of our mission trips as a student ministry. It comes from Paul's second letter to the Colossians, chapter 5, verse 14. And I'm only going to give you half the verse. I'm not taking it out of context. I promise it fully applies if you read the whole verse. I like to keep things simple for you so that you can remember it. It's simply this. Christ's love compels us. The love of Jesus compels us in this life. Now, you might say, well, compels us to do what? Paul tells us in verse 11, he very specifically says, to try to persuade others. Christ's love compels us to try to persuade others, fill in the blank with how God might use you in your life to do that. There's so many options. (laughs) Easter is five weeks away. Does Christ's love compel you to share the story of Easter and the resurrection with those around you? Does it compel you to do that today? Because another thing Christ's love can compel you to do is actually accept that love for yourself. And so if you haven't done that, then now is the time. Today is the day. Why wait? As I said, the end times are always near for all of us. We all have a very limited time on this planet. We, don't, we aren't guaranteed our next breath. So if you've always thought, well, end times is when Jesus returns. No, end times is when you meet Jesus. Whether he returns or not, that's irrelevant. So it's something to consider. As we move forward, does Christ's love compel you? I love that word, compel. What does it mean to you? Father God, as we close the teaching of the Sermon on the Plain today, the the teachings are incredible. The revolutionary, they changed the entire course of the world. Without those teachings, those first believers in Rome, they they wouldn't have been saving children that have been left out to exposure Without those teachings of loving your enemies, Father, that example would have never been set for us. This world would be a very different, different place. Father, that idea of not judging others is something that's so difficult to do. It seems to be our instinct to judge those around us when we see people doing things that we don't agree with, things that we are in opposition to. Father, even things that we see ruining their lives, we want to stop them. We judge them. Instead of judging them, we need to go to them. We need to love them. We need to share with them, yes, that their ways are are in the wrong direction. That is as true as can be, but there's a correct way to do that. I pray you give us the chance to as soon as possible. Father, as we leave this place today, each and every time we gather, I pray that these teachings aren't just things that we hear. These aren't just words that were on a screen in front of us, but Father, these are words meant to change our entire lives. These are words that have the potential, once we allow them to change our lives, to change the lives of every single person around us. But Father, we've got to dwell in them. We've got to live within them. We can't just walk out the door, go to lunch, and forget that we were even here. We can't just wake up tomorrow morning and forget that today ever happened. Father, we've got to spend time in your word reflecting on these things. Maybe we need to listen to them over and over and again. We're all different phases of life. We have different memories, different skills of learning. 
I'm not preaching a one, one size fits all for everybody. We've got to find the way you created us to learn and to grow and to implement these things in our lives. But Father, it's a requirement. We've got to do these things. We've got to love others. There's no choice. We've got to stop judging and lead them in your direction. Father, we have such an opportunity, a privilege to gather in your name on these days. Let us never, ever, ever take it for granted. Let your love be the thing that compels us not just to come in on a Sunday morning, but compels us to pray with our wives and our kids, that compels us to be a part of an additional Bible study, that compels us to love our coworkers when uh, they just don't like us. And Father, a love that compels us to love the world around us and invite them in to this love that we found. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.